0: Hello and welcome to Macrobytes, the economics and politics podcast from Aberdeen. My name is Luke Bartholomew, and as you may have noticed there, we have a new name, Macrobytes, to go along with our new corporate name. So please don't be confused if you see a name change in your podcast stream or anything like that. It is still us. And um, I'm delighted to say to help us launch our new name, we are joined by a very special guest today in Duncan Weldon. Duncan is the UK economics correspondent at The Economist, having previously held numerous roles in economics, journalism, policy and financial markets. And most importantly, he's the author of a newly published book on UK economic history called 200 Years of Muddling Through, the Surprising Story of Britain's Economy from Boom to Bust and Back Again. I've just finished the book and I can say it's absolutely fantastic. I learned a lot. So I'm delighted that Duncan is with us today. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. So Duncan, thanks very much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Pleasure. So I think a good place to start as any is with the title of the book itself and this idea of muddling through. It sort of strikes me that there's sort of maybe a trope of UK economics commentary that you know, at best, there's something unstrategic and at worst, frankly, something shambolic about UK policymaking without wishing to deny that premise. I suppose my question is, do you think that's unique to the UK? Or is that, you know, maybe some bias that comes from us being close observers? And if we were French or economics economy watchers, we'd think that policymaking was just as muddled there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I I agree. I mean, if we you know, if you're looking for a shorthand description of UK economic policy over the last two hundred years, often shambolic and usually unstrategic, isn't the bad place to start. I mean, if you you know if you look at the last two hundred years of economic history, I think I count five, you know, um, economically consequential prime ministers. Most aren't. Now, is it uniquely British? Um, you know, I'm sure. I'm sure things feel more shambolic when you watch it closely, but I think sort of this approach of muddling through, of not having a longer-term vision is, if not uniquely British, at least distinctly British. And I think that's partially because of the structure of the British economy, you know, it's a very small-l, liberal, decentralised kind of place. It's much harder to sort of shunt it off into a different direction in a coordinated way than it is in some of the um, other European economies, let alone some of the Asian ones. And I think it's also, it's also a result of history, in that we industrialised first, we became rich, much quicker than anyone else you know on the earth and I think when you have this sort of um when when you're the first industrial nation when you've taken off in a fairly uncoordinated way that sort of embeds this sense that we don't need much coordination you know things happen it'll probably be okay but I do think you know 150 years on from that industrialization it's sometimes a bit more shambolic than you'd like it to be.
0: Sure. And I was sort of interested there in your answer of there being only five really consequential prime ministers, because I think it's fair to say one of the key themes in your book is the importance of political economy. And obviously that's music to our ears as a politics and economics podcast. So perhaps you could sort of give us some sense of how you see the relationship between politics and economics playing out.
1: Yeah, I mean, I you know, I, I like to think about things in what I think of as a political economic framework. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is trying to understand what's happening in a macro economy, particularly over the medium to longer term, without looking at sort of the wider political system, social developments. You're going to miss a lot. You're going to get a lot of things wrong. And simultaneously, trying to understand what's happening in politics without being aware of what's happening in the economy around it, you're going to get a lot of things wrong. So I I sort of think about the the trade-off between political developments, economic developments, how the two feed off each other. And so policymakers are quite important to my story in the book. But I think, you know, in my job as a journalist, I've spoken to a lot of policymakers over the last 15, 20 years, and I... I think policymakers tend to misunderstand how they affect the economy. They tend to overestimate what they can achieve in the short term, but at the same time underestimate sort of the long-term impacts they can have. So it's this sort of you know, confusing picture of politics and economics feeding off each other and the people at the centre of it sometimes not quite understanding their own role. So it, it,
0: it struck me that the, the politics that you were especially interested in or thought mattered more was less this politics of elections, prime ministers, manifestos, and more what I suppose some people would call sort of the, the structural fundamentals of politics, clashing interest groups and in sort of this sense that those interest groups over time have potentially changed at one point, maybe class-based. Now it's perhaps about employment in the public and private sector, whether you're a property owner or whatever it might be. But but is that a fair reading that really to understand political and economic developments, you need to be looking at at, at those kind of interest group struggles?
1: Yes, I I think that's right. I I, I think, you know, economic outcomes are rarely the straightforward sort of interrelationship of a neatly drawn demand line and a supply line on a graph. Power matters. If you want to understand economic outcomes and distributions and all of the you know, how, how these things are all decided, and you need to look back to sort of the power of different interest groups over time. You know, I, that that's how I understand much of the last 200 years of British economic and ultimately political history. It's about the, the old landed interest, you know, they dominated the economy and they dominated political structures, and then the economy starts to change. You get the growth of you get industrialisation, you get the cities, you get these new powerful owners of capital in the commercial and industrial middle class and they they muscle their way into the system and from the late 19th century into the 20th you see labor you know smaller labor becoming a much more stronger political voice you see more of the returns from growth going to the workforce now i think what's interesting these things are often much easier to spot in hindsight than at the time i think one really interesting thing in british politics at the moment the rise of what you might call an almost post-economic interest group and what do i mean by that i mean sort of people either retired or nearing retirement with often quite decent pensions they're living off or are going to live off you tend to own their property there are more and more of these people as we age they are more likely to vote than anyone else so they have disproportionate political power and with reasonably secure incomes and with reasonably secure housing, they're almost disconnected from what's happening in the economy on a day-to-day basis. And how your political system manages a powerful interest group who are less interested in what's happening in the economy, well, that's a a new challenge.
0: So this idea that power really matters and distributions are sort of mediated as much through institutions as they are through supply and demand. I mean, the example that really struck me in the book that you talked about, and I, and I think it does potentially have important lessons or implications for today, is this period that you describe as the Engels pause, right? And this is, I'll, I'll let you describe it in more detail, but essentially we had this idea in economics that productivity growth and wage growth are pretty closely tied together, and this is a period where that seemed to come apart.
1: Yeah, so, you know, traditional economics, you know, very, very traditional theory, You know, wage uh, marginal wages should equal marginal productivity. As productivity levels rise, workers should um, you know see their see their wages rise. Now, I say it's neat in theory, but this is a really good example of power mattering. So, if you think back to the Industrial Revolution, sort of turn of the eighteen hundreds, you know, Britain undergoes this huge economic shift. We get modern productivity growth for the first time. We get modern economic growth for the first time. Much faster growth on a more sustained basis than the economy had ever experienced. But what's sort of fascinating is for the first three or four decades of that industrial growth at the start of the 19th century, you see the economy growing, you see the profit share growing, you see the returns on capital growing, but workers don't really get many of the fruits of that at all. I mean, you know, real wages are pretty flat, even though the economy is growing. In fact, this is the time you've got, you know, talk of satanic mills, it's time you've got the Luddites smashing machines. And it's the time that Marx and Engels write the Communist Manifesto. You know, they sit down in the 1840s, they look at three or four decades of data in Britain, and they say what this new capitalism means is rising profits, flat wages, this can't last. And it's one of those of historical ironies that just as Marx and Engels write the communist manifesto the relationship they've been documenting changes. and in the second half of the 19th century you see wages pick up really sharply but it's a 30 or 40 year period and you know it's very easy when you're going through a time of rapid technological change to say well in the long run everything's going to be fine but the long run can last The short run can last 30 or 40 years.
0: Well, I think that very nicely brings us to why I think this might be relevant to today, because obviously we hear a lot of talk about rapid technological change, this idea of maybe robots eating all the jobs. And perhaps in the long run, that does mean productivity growth is higher. And that means more to share between everyone. But in the short run, which can last a long time, there are important distributional masses to be sold. So I wonder, sort of, what is your sense uh, around like the degree that the UK's labour market and broader institutions are well placed to deal with any structural transformation that might be coming our
1: way? Yeah, I mean, you know, when I talk about institutions, I very much use the economic historian um, definition of institutions. That's not necessarily like an organisation with a front door you can go and knock on. I mean, it, it, when I say institutions, I mean, not just physical institutions with front doors you can knock on. I mean, sort of the wider rules of the game, the norms of behaviour, how the economy runs itself. The fascinating thing about Britain is many of our institutions really developed in the 19th century into the early 20th, you know, as in reaction to the Industrial Revolution. Now we're undergoing what some people think of as another Industrial Revolution, certainly potentially rapid technological change, and the question becomes are our old institutions fit to cope. I mean, you know, mankind has yet to develop a technology which has increased unemployment in the long run. Um, yet, and, yeah, the fears have been there a long time. The fears are there in the 19th century, they're there when industrial robots appear in factories after the Second World War, they're there when the microchip is developed in the 1970s. It's yet to happen yet, but, you know, as we were saying, those periods of adjustment can last a long time can feel very painful for people living through them
0: of course for us to have the spoils of productivity growth to share around that actually has to be productivity growth right and it, it strikes me that for as much as there's been a lot of concern about huge technological transformation um yeah, technological unemployment that comes with that the the bigger issue that the uk economy has been facing recently is that productivity growth has been absolutely Awful. And indeed, I think there's a passage in your book where you sort of preempt what you think future economic historians will think looking back in 50 years and think that the biggest story the economy has faced is why productivity growth has flatlined for so long. So, I mean, do you have any thoughts as sort of the explanation as to why the UK's productivity growth has been so poor?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd say, you know, if you wanted to publish a popular economics book before the pandemic, writing something about how the robots were going to take all of our jobs was probably the best idea. Now it's presumably something to do with the pandemics and lessons from that, I don't know. I, I, yeah, um, it's not quite my space. But you look at the, um, you look at the data in the UK in the 2010s and what did you see? You saw very low unemployment, higher and higher employment rates, and abysmal productivity. I mean, this is literally the opposite problem to the robots taking our jobs, literally the opposite. In fact, you know, I say in the book at one point, if you look at car washes and what's happened to car washes in Britain over the last 20 years, you go back 20 years, car wash meant an automatic roller machine next to a petrol station forecourt. Um, Nowadays, two thirds of car washes are not an automatic roller machine next to a petrol station um forecourt it's a bunch of men with some sponges and a bucket i mean you know we are taking the robots jobs um we've become less capital intense in some parts of the economy um quite what drove that well you know if i could answer that um i should have written a book on what caused the productivity crisis but there's no doubt a bit of mismeasurement there but i think one important factor in britain in the last 20 years has been incredibly weak labour bargaining power and I think you know when firms are deciding do they want to take on potentially risky expensive capital investment which is often a sunk cost is if they can substitute if they can use people um, instead of machines who are easier to hire and fire in a liberalised labour market they will and I think that that is one of the explanations now a really interesting thing in the 2020s is going to be do we have a bit of a tighter labour market, you know, just both here and in the United States, and our firm's going to react by ramping up capital investment.
0: So it sort of strikes me with that answer that you're hinting a little bit to the idea that perhaps just if we run the economy a little bit hotter, if growth were a a bit stronger and labour markets are a bit tighter, then perhaps productivity growth would have have taken care of itself. Are, Are you sympathetic to those kind of arguments?
1: I am, I am sympathetic to the argument that running the economy hot will increase wage growth and rising wage growth will prompt capital investment and therefore productivity. I'm also aware, having just written a book on British economic history, that policymakers always buy this argument when they start running the economy hot, and often the result is not booming capital investment, it's higher inflation than you wanted. I and mean, it's one of these ones where I think you've got to keep a really close eye on the data if that's what you're doing.
0: So it's funny that you should say that, you know, there's a lot of people that want to sort of buy into this argument that if only we run the economy hot, then the supply side would take care of itself, because it sort of strikes me that one of the themes in your book is the, what I might call the institutional conservatism of the the treasury and you know it strikes me that that's exactly the opposite of the kind of arguments that they want to hear and certainly i don't think they would buy the argument that poor demand management through the 2010s had a particularly important role in determining productivity so i mean just more generally i mean do you have some thoughts about the way in which treasury has impacted sort of the long sweep of uk economic history
1: oh absolutely i mean you know the treasury the treasury is an unusual part um, you know, it's, it's an unusually dominant finance ministry, you know, compared to our peers. And it, there's long roots there. You know, it's in the 19th century. The Treasury arises to be the most important part of Whitehall. And all sorts of institutional arrangements develop in Britain, which don't develop elsewhere, such as departments having to OK their spending plans annually with the Treasury. And that gives the Treasury a chance to put its tentacles around Whitehall. And in the 20th century. The Treasury comes to be the leading economic ministry, as we have an economic policy, for, you know, first, let's read it. it's a 20th century thing, having an econo- a macroeconomic policy. But the Treasury, despite being our leading economic ministry, is still fundamentally a finance ministry. You know, Treasury civil servants rise by keeping a firm hand on public expenditure. It's a department where the ability to say no um, is more important than the ability to say yes. Um, You know, lots of it's shaped by Gladstone, obviously, Prime Minister four times, Chancellor twice before that, very dominant figure in the Treasury. His idea of, you know, what the Treasury is about is about controlling public expenditure, making sure debt doesn't get out of hand, being against clever wheezers, really, if at all possible, trying to keep it out of economic management. There was a, you know, that spirit of Gladstone, like 160 odd years on, um, still sometimes lives in the Treasury building.
0: I guess one area where Treasury famously didn't get its way or at least policy went against what Treasury was looking for would be with Brexit, right? And you talk a fair bit in the book about how important you think opening up to the competition from the EU was in the UK supply side turnaround in the 80s and 90s. I mean, so do you have a sense that now that we've left that those benefits start to be undone or are they locked in? In some way, how should we think about those impacts?
1: Yeah, I mean, so you know, have a long view story uh, of so the last 70 odd years of British economic histories. From the 1950s, 60s, 70s, you see this relative decline in Britain versus Western Europe. And then starting in the mid 80s until 2010, you see a, until uh, 2008, you see a catch up. You know, Our productivity growth is a lot weaker than Europe's in the fifties and sixties. And you can debate what causes that. You can say it's difficult industrial relations. You can say it's weak investment. You can say it's poor corporate leadership, you any number of reasons, for what people called the British disease. But one reason sitting behind it all, I think, was a lack of competition and a lack of dynamism in the British economy. Britain went from being this enormously open free trading economy at the center of the global economic system to becoming a more insular place to importing less exporting less in the 50s and 60s government policy you know from the 30s onwards was talking about rationalization about you know cartelizing bits of the economy to get the efficiencies of economies of scale of nationalizing some parts of it and it just became a less competitive dynamic place and whether it was weak industrial relations weak investment poor training poor management whatever it was the reasons these problems were allowed to fester was because there wasn't enough competition joining the european economic community brought in more imports and you know exposed our tired somewhat tired firms to new competitors it gave access to a bigger marketplace for exporters prompting them to try and do better and i think that is the decisive supply side policy of the last 30 years you know the factory reforms certainly help but i think sitting sitting behind it all is joining the EEC that became the EU. Now leaving that, you know, the government's got a choice. Um, We don't quite know where they're going to come down on it yet, but does leaving the EU um, ultimately mean a bit more protection for British firms from foreign competition? Yes or no. If they go down the route of protecting British firms, then I worry that sort of lack of dynamism of the 1950s and 60s will start to seep back into the economy. So
0: I think where you may have left the book, uh, had the pandemic not come along, is with this thought that Brexit is far from done when you leave the EU. There are deep questions of how you want to use the new quote unquote freedom. And you've also talked before about the sort of the path dependence and the sense in which sort of it is very difficult to fundamentally shape up um, the structure of the economy so I mean do you think it is possible that a new economic model can be born in the 2020s or are we sort of still uh, for better or for worse stuck with the same broad institutional patterns that we've seen for, for much of the sweep of history?
1: You're right Luke, in an ideal world I would have finished the book with the Brexit vote as an ideal natural chapter end bookstop and then a pandemic happened. So I ended up with a longer epilogue than I originally intended. Um, yeah, I mean, look, even if the pandemic hadn't happened, the 2020s are going to be this hugely important, decisive decade for Britain. One, because Brexit has happened and we've now got to make choices about what our trading relationships with the rest of the world look like. Um, and we've now got much more freedom if we want to use it, things like state ahead not being constrained by single market rules, big questions as to how we're going to use these powers. Plus, we know that it's in the 2020s that the decarbonization we need to hit our 2050 net zero targets are going to happen. They're going to be big questions. And then on top of that, you've got the pandemic, which may or may not have, well, it looks like it has, Um, supercharge some existing trends, whether that's towards online retail, a bit more hybrid working, changing some of the economic geography of cities. So these are all big, big challenges. Now, is Boris Johnson going to become an economically consequential Prime Minister? I mean, probably, to the extent he was Prime Minister when Brexit happened. The question is, is he going to use this political moment to do what an athlete did a thatcher did what a lloyd george did act in his historical time and push britain down another path or is he going to just well do the name of the book keep muddling through and my worry is he seems more of a muddler than a than a thatcher or an athlete
0: so whilst the the pandemic might have meant that the uh, the epilogue needed to be a little bit longer i guess one upside for you is that comparisons to economic history have suddenly become rather more in vogue at the moment. Immediately after the pandemic struck, there was talk of perhaps we would come out of this into a new roaring 20s, although it's far from clear, Britain really did have a roaring 20s. And now as inflation is ticking up and indeed shortages are being discussed at the moment, there's now talk of perhaps it's the 1970s and stagflation. So So my final question, is there a period of time in in British economic history which you think sort of resonates most closely with what we're facing today or is this a completely different set of challenges?
1: Well, I think, you know, what I've learned is it's much easier writing about the past than talking about the future. uh, But um, I think the comparison with the 70s at the moment, I mean, it's interesting to look at. You know know what it's like. Um, The moment inflation gets to where inflation is now, still historically quite low people start talking about a high inflation period like the 70s. And I, I, I think the comparison with the 70s doesn't hold to the extent that the 70s wasn't just about inflation. It was about everything that could go wrong, going wrong in quick succession from bad policy to a housing market boom, to a huge energy price shock. Um, all of that breakdown of the Bretton Woods system, bringing currency volatility in. You We're know, when, when not in that moment. And I think the economy has actually undergone quite big, profound shifts since the 1970s. You know, in the 1970s, more than 50% of workers were unionized compared to about one in five today. The labor market is a much more liberal, flexible place than it was in the 70s. Supply chains are much more global. You know, I mean, it's really hard to see the dynamics of that kind of sustained inflation we got in the 1970s repeating. Um, I think what we're probably looking at is something like the 1930s, about to pick a decade, um, in terms of the outlook for the next few years is going to be really variable across the UK, you're going to have some people who are doing really well, you know, the pandemic hasn't particularly disrupted their jobs. If anything, it's made it easier because they're commuting a bit less. They feel they've got a bit more income. As things open up again, they will be going out to spend and probably feeling richer than they were. And then you've got other people um, who are more exposed to rising prices, working in sectors which haven't fully recovered yet, for whom um, things are not going to be great. And that's sort of the picture of 1930s Britain. It wasn't a miserable time for everyone there were enough people doing well that the government kept being re-elected but it really depend, depended who you were where you were in the country and what sort of job you were doing and I think the 2020s might feel like that with vastly different outcomes for workers and people in different sectors and different parts of the country
0: brilliant i think that is a fantastic place to leave it so thank you so much to duncan for joining us today his book is 200 years of muddling through and as you would have been able to tell from that conversation it is extremely rich with insights and i can wholeheartedly recommend it and thank you everyone for listening today please do comment like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and we look forward to speaking to you all again soon thank you very much